Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A 16-year-old Tennessee boy will be tried as an adult for the murder of his young brother earlier this year. Uh, He said he didn't like playing with him. A Kansas City man has been charged with the murder of his brother with a sword last week. There had been an argument over the oven being turned off while he was cooking a pizza. He'd originally told police his brother had committed suicide with a sword. A 73-year-old man in Queens confessed to shooting his so-called freeloading brother when said brother locked him out of their 92-year-old mother's house where he was living. The killer had come to take his mom to her sister's funeral. The mass shooting in Raleigh, North Carolina this week was allegedly committed by the younger brother of one of the victims. The shooter was 15 years old and will be prosecuted as an adult. Life pretty much over. Brother killing brother. And those stories are just a short list from the news stories that were you know, around last week. Senseless. You know, people worry about a lot of things, but you know, being killed by your, one of your own family members shouldn't be on that list. The Bible uses brotherly love as an example of the good things that we should strive for. Uh, Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not be afraid to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. In Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. The Bible uses family love as one of the highest examples of Christian love. Those horrible news stories are really in glaring contrast to how the world is supposed to be. And even though we seem to hear about it more, it's really nothing new. Just outside the Garden of Eden, not long after the creation of the world, the first child born into this new world, from a very first parents, a young man named Cain, killed his younger brother, Abel. It was the first murder ever. They were the first brothers ever, first children ever. That's pretty messed up. And judging from the most recent headlines, the beat goes on. Makes you wonder why people listen to that little voice in their heads when it's telling them that murder is the right thing to do, or how that voice even got there in the first place. Well, the answer lies in our basic nature. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we've never been quite right in the head, or at least in the heart. Adam and Eve did more than just get themselves escorted from Eden when they chose to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. They brought down a curse on themselves and the entire creation. The embarrassment and shame they experienced at their nakedness was just the start. Adam had quickly stitched together leaves to cover themselves up. Not the best choice. Leaves tend to dry out and then crumble. God was angry with them for disobeying him. And he was disappointed, certainly, too. But he still loved them. So he used the skin of animals to make proper clothing for them. Not such good news, really, I suppose, for the innocent animals who were already using them. And you have to wonder if he made Adam and Eve watch as he did it to teach them that sin has terrible consequences, deadly consequences. Death was a new phenomenon in Eden. It was horrifying, and it still is. You know, we do just about everything we can to avoid it, short of uh, proper diet and exercise. We mock it. We fret over it. We get consumed by the very thought of it. And when it confronts us, we try to rob it of all its gruesomeness with embalming fluid and flowers and kind words. But death is still death. The last enemy, the Bible calls it. The final catastrophe, this side of eternity. The ultimate wages of sin. But people have a long history of not really worrying about sin. 
whether it's not realizing how much of a sinner you are, like the Pharisee in our gospel lesson this morning, or being an outright murderer, like Cain in our lesson from Genesis. Uh, we excel at sinning. And we worry about getting caught, and we worry about the consequences of our action, maybe, but there's some part of us that's just a little too comfortable with sin until it's too late. Adam and Eve could have faced those deadly consequences the moment they turned away from God, but he chose to show them grace instead. Now they lived outside the, the gates of God's earthly paradise, with, and without a doubt, looking back longingly at what was, had been theirs at one time, but was now lost to them forever. And they managed through a lot of toil and, and sweat to scratch out a meager existence from the ground, all the while clinging to God's promise of redemption far beyond their, their new set of clothes. They couldn't even manage to cover their shame without help. And neither can you and I. You know, they looked to God's promise of a Savior who had crushed the head of that crafty old serpent, Satan, who had somehow managed to get inside their heads and convince them that they could do a better job at life than God. And so things aren't easy, but they get by. Life goes on. Life always goes on, doesn't it? And eventually they have a child, a boy they named Cain. The day Cain was born, Eve thought God's promised seed had already come, that the serpent was as good as dead, their honor avenged. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, she exclaimed. Translated a little more literally, she said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. She thought Cain was the promised redeemer, but she was wrong. And boy, was she wrong. She was right in believing that God's redeemer would come one day. And it's obvious that it was on Cain that she pinned all her hopes. But there's a great reversal that involves son number two. A second son, Abel's name, means vanity. Not in the sense of being conceited, but more like it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes. More or less worthless. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an indication that not much was expected of him. And yet Jesus himself calls him righteous in, in Matthew 23. Not very many people uh, rate that name. The two boys grew to manhood. Cain followed his father into the fields as a tiller of the earth. Hardworking and industrious, his produce was his pride and joy. Abel became a simple shepherd in what would become a whole line of shepherds throughout the Old Testament, forerunners of the coming good shepherd, Jesus. Now, while the hot sun beat down on his brother in the fields, Abel would be sitting under a tree watching over his flocks, one eye peeled for a hungry wolf. Maybe he thought about the stories his mother and father would have surely shared around the fire at night, stories about life in the garden before the fall, about the love and mercy of God. The boys had been taught well. They knew there was a God. They knew sin was an offense to him. And then the day comes, the Bible tells us, when the brothers made their way together to the place of worship. Now, they've been taught that when coming to God, you were to bring an offering, a sign of repentance and your continued dependence on him. Cain brought with him an offering of the finest fruits and vegetables his fields and his hard labor had produced. Abel came with the firstborn of his flock, a lamb without any spot or blemish. He built a small altar of stones as he'd been taught and prepared the sacrifice. Now you have to wonder if Cain didn't look on with, with some uh, disgust at the sight, his own blood rising. His altar smelled sweet with the fresh fruits of the earth, not bloody, not smoky. Like life, not death. And maybe he managed a little smirk at the extreme difference between the two. Maybe his anger 
burned against his brother for wasting good stock, an animal that Abel really hadn't worked all that hard to, to produce apart from leading his flock from one grassy field to the next. Cain was proud of what he'd done and how he must stand out before the Lord. Right? And he fully expected God would be pleased with his offering. He was the, the elder brother after all. But Cain worshipped God with his works, not with his heart. It's really an early picture of what we call the visible and invisible church. Uh, the visible church is the one we can see. People in the pews or the seats on Sunday morning singing the songs, smiling, shaking hands. Uh, the other church, the invisible one, is really the true church. The one only God sees because only God can see whether or not a person is led there by pride or to earn points or to but maybe by worry about what will people will think if they're not there or by faith. And look what happens. Moses, who wrote Genesis, tells us that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. I have to think that God had made it pretty clear to Adam and Eve how he wanted to be worshipped. And scripture tells us that forgiveness required the shedding of blood and sacrifice. In addition to their parental role, they were acting as priests for the time being to their sons, passing that knowledge on. The offering of a sacrifice was a visible way for God to show his grace, the promise of forgiveness attached to that act. Now, he'd already demonstrated that personally when he made their first set of clothes. That's how the people of Moses' generation would have understood this text, how it's explained elsewhere in Scripture. Abel's offering represented the coming death of Jesus, the once and for all sacrificial lamb whose own shed blood covers all our sins for all time. And that's really what's at issue here. Salvation isn't based on works righteousness. Uh, and any man-made effort to please God for salvation is always going to fall short. Any doubts about that are dispelled by the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, chapter 11, verse 4 says that, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith. The Bible says that God looked at Abel first and then his offering, and then he looked at Cain and looked at his offering, and that he had regard for Abel, but not for Cain. It wasn't the offering itself that was ultimately, ultimately at issue here, whether or not it was right or wrong, and that's always a big point of discussion. Um, it was the heart. You know, God looks first to the heart. He always looks for faith before making a judgment. He found it in Abel, but not in Cain. Martin Luther says that if Cain had brought the shell of a nut for his sacrifice, it would have been pleasing to God. But because he'd come apart from faith, his heart filled with pride and conceit, Cain was rejected and therefore his offering. Our best works, if not accompanied and motivated by faith, are worthless in God's eyes. Abel took his place before God as a poor, miserable sinner, needing an atoning sacrifice. In a way he didn't completely understand, he was looking to Calvary for forgiveness. Like Abraham one day would. He believed God, and God counted that faith, uh, credited to him as righteousness. Not so with Cain. He'd come before God draped in his own self-righteousness, proudly presenting the works of his own hands. No blood for him. That was barbaric. It was offensive and disgusting. He came his way, the way that seemed right enough to him and to all those who would come after him in his way, and still do. But there are only two ways to approach God, by way of the blood-stained cross and the empty tomb, 
or by the way of king. One road leads to heaven, the other to hell. Like so many self-proclaimed, you know, so-called spiritual people today, everybody's spiritual, right? Uh, Cain put together his own roadmap to heaven, and it led him right off a cliff. And no one is saying that Cain didn't work hard. The ground was under a curse. Being a farmer was no small chore, and his offering was no doubt costly. But the only person who received satisfaction for Cain's offering that day was Cain himself. And he became angry. And an angry man is his own worst enemy. We don't enjoy being wrong either or admitting that we've made a mistake. Sinful natures don't do humble very well, do they? they? They like to blame. And so he lures his brother out into the fields where no one can see them, and maybe there's a confrontation. The Bible says they spoke. Maybe Abel offered to supply a lamb for Cain to sacrifice. That would have sent him over the top for sure. The little voice in Cain's head is telling him that his problem with God is standing right in front of him. That this was his chance to not only take care of the competition, but to get even with God in one fell swoop. And so he swoops. The Bible says that he rose up and killed Abel. The language suggests that it was a surprise attack. A sick, twisted logic, maybe. But then Cain wasn't exactly thinking right. Uh, Satan is working on him over time. It's so easy to hurt the ones we love, isn't it? You know, no one can make us quite so angry, can push all our buttons than someone who knows us best. And we'll, we'll show kindness to strangers all day long. And then we'll turn around and treat our loved ones like the scum of the earth that night. There's a little of Cain in all of us, and probably a lot of Cain in most of us. So the Lord comes to Cain and he asks, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain answers. Am I my brother's keeper? Famous last words, right? Of course, we were our brother's keeper. You know, Jesus was once asked what the greatest commandment was, of all the commandments, what the greatest one was. And he summed them all up like this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So yes, we are all our brother's keeper our neighbor's keeper, everyone's keeper. It's black and white to God. There's no gray areas here. There's no such thing as a neutral heart. In God's economy, if you're not your brother's keeper, then you're his murderer. There are always consequences for sin, and there are consequences for Cain. And notice how God does it. God further curses the ground Cain works. No longer will it yield its crops for him. Now, the earth is already under a curse for Adam's disobedience, and now God raises it to a whole new level, a personal level. He takes away from Cain the very thing he thought would earn God's favor. But he doesn't do it to destroy him. He wants to bring him to repentance. God extends his mercy even to murderers. You know, we heard it first in God's warning about sin crouching at Cain's door when he was angry. And now, after the killing, his pronouncement of punishment brings Cain to his knees. My punishment is more than I can bear, he cries out. That's the purpose of the law, right? To show us that the consequence of sin is always more than we can bear. To show us that we need someone to bear it for us. To show us that we need a savior. Having brought Cain to repentance, God doesn't take his life, although he would surely have been justified if he did. Instead, he gives him a new one. 
Repentance and faith leads to forgiveness. And God placed a mark on him to show everyone that he was forgiven and that he was protected. Now, we don't know what that was. This mysterious mark of Cain has been used throughout the centuries to justify racism and wars. But whatever that mark might have been, it was a good thing, not a result of God's law, but his gospel that protected Cain. You and I bear a mark. Each one of us was marked the day we became a child of God in the waters of baptism. It's part of the baptismal liturgy. We, we, the pastor says, receive the sign of the Holy Cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Holy baptism. In baptism, God's word and the water washed away all our sins and made us his children, even though we came to those waters as helpless sinners. Like the story of Cain and Abel, our relationship with our heavenly fathers is never about what we've done, but rather what we've received. The story isn't just about death. It's about life. It's about us. It's about the nature of sin to corrupt and kill us. It's about the devil raising Cain in our lives. And it's about God being able, able to create new life and turn corrupt hearts and minds into compassionate hearts and minds by faith in the shed blood of Jesus. Blood that can wash away even the most uh, scarlet of sins and make them as white as snow. New life that makes us our brother's keeper, not his killer. So when the devil's raising Cain in your life and redemption sounds like a fading dream, remember, God is able. That's good news we can use. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.